So I, they, these people talk me into going and give a public statement. All these people that are aware of what's going on with the dental board tell me what's going on with the dental board and how corrupt it is. And they go, listen, go give a public statement. We're gonna have a video camera there, we'll record it. So I go get my public statement. And as soon as I start talking about doctors and stuff, they cut me off and silence me because they don't want me to expose their corruption. And that's what the whole public statement was about, was their corruption. Go give this, and they cut me off, they call, call the police, they, they run me out of the meeting. Then after I'm home, they apply for an extended restraining order against me. So I can never go back and speak. And they lied in this restraining order saying that their lives were threatened and all that kind of stuff. So anyways, we have video evidence that shows they're all laughing and joking around. No one was scared for their lives. It was just all a big scam to try and silence me, right? Then the governor swoops in, cancels the board meeting right before they're about to screw me, cancels the entire dental board meeting and says, you all need to come in next week for a disciplinary hearing for doing what you're doing. So no one shows up to the disciplinary hearing. They all resign. And before they resign, they fire the executive director and the attorney for the dental board. Now, why did they do that? They didn't do that because they're scared of being disciplined. They have so much power, it's crazy. They did that because I threatened them with a lawsuit that would make them personally liable. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, remediescounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm your podcast host, Scott Simpson. In part two of my interview with patient advocate David Moore, he tells us about being a caregiver to his friend and mentor, college professor Patty, as her health declines and the medical machine intervenes. When Patty goes in for what she thinks will be a routine 45-minute operation, David waits patiently. When the surgeon comes out after three hours and says there are complications, David begins to worry. When Patty survives and gets to the ICU, the surgeons want to do more surgeries to fix what they broke. But David is named in Patty's medical directive, 
and he follows her wishes and tries to protect her from what he calls the profiteering of Nazi-esque eugenics programs. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and other major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons of the podcast get access to video versions of the interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. If you're dealing with the repercussions of a medical error or living with a complex chronic illness and need the support of an experienced counselor, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's part two of my interview with patient advocate David Moore. And a, a note of caution, some folks may be triggered by David and Patty's experience with the healthcare system. Yeah, so we've touched on a couple of different medical error things. Your whole personal experience with the dental industry, repeated uh, poor experiences. Uh, your conceptualization around the microbiome and how that's sort of embedded medical error in our nutritional approach. Amen. The medical error of what they're doing to the elderly, over-treating, doing these procedures that the elderly wouldn't want. And I know from reading studies of physicians, when they're asked, what do you want your end of life care to be like? They do not want to be sustained. They do not want the heroic efforts that they seem to, to do. Um, but you also mentioned that uh, recently uh, you were a caretaker uh, for an elderly friend. Um, Share a bit about that experience and how that ties into the medical error as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I've been a, a caregiver for the last 15 years to a friend of mine. She was my department chair when I was an adjunct professor at UNLV. And um, basically about three years ago, she um, went into the doctor and they identified aortic stenosis. And all that means is there's a valve in your heart that's become over calcified and it's reducing the blood flow. Okay. So it's not that big of a deal unless you go running, unless you go hiking or unless you go do something and highly exert yourself. And if you highly exert yourself, then yeah, you can have a fainting spell and it's a special kind of fainting spell. It's, it's not fun, <laughs> but, but anyways, so that's really, that's really it. And yeah, and so basically she's 78 years old and they identify aortic stenosis and they do some echocardiograms and I am sitting there fighting against Patty getting this surgery. And they're recommending a surgery called a TAVR, some kind of valve medical device that they stick up there through the, air, through the arteries they stick it up through the groin arteries all the way into the heart. They cut out the old valve and they put in a, a, a device, a device, and it has a cage that's supposed to expand and seal, right? So that, and if it doesn't seal, they call that a leaky valve. 
Now, a leaky valve is also called heart failure, okay? So understand that Patty, who was 78 years old, went on my marijuana, uh, my marijuana regimen. She was ingesting marijuana. And for a period of three years, she had cleared out her arteries, so she didn't require a stent. She did everything in diet changes. And just so you know, there's a new study that just came out that said, you know, stents and all that kind of stuff are, are, are less effective than diet changes. So we proved that. We verified that 100%. We cleared out her arteries in three years. But during this whole three years, she lost 30 pounds. She was going in and out of the pool more this last year than she's ever been in the previous 10 years. More energetic, mind totally alert, she's totally great. Never had any problems, never fainted, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, she's feeling lethargic. Yeah, she's, uh, you know, doesn't feel like she's on top of the world like she used to be. Yeah, she's 78 years old. Yeah, she's not necessarily aging gracefully. <laughs> but, okay, no one deserves to be pressured and forced into a, a procedure that, that has an mo increased mortality rate. So for three years, they told her that she could drop dead any minute. For three years, they were telling her this. She would wake up at night in panic attacks. She would scream out to me, afraid that she was going to die. And I'm just like, listen, Patty, you got to understand, this is your sleep apnea. And she, she identified that she had sleep apnea. And I go, listen, your sleep apnea caused you to stop breathing. So when you wake up, you're going to, of course, you're going to feel a little bit of a panic because your heart's going to start pounding again, you know? So just understand that. So anyway, so we go this whole thing. So finally, they convince her to get an angiogram. So the echocardiograms show that her aortic valve opening was at 0.36 centimeters, which is insane. That is so insane. That is so, anything below 0.7 or 0.8 is considered critical. She's at 0.36. So she should literally be dead according to their statistics, right? And she's not. She lives a totally sedentary lifestyle. I did all of her grocery shopping. She never left the damn house. And she was happy as shit. She was always on the computer, always working. She's teaching classes online at Florida International. She's a great human being, totally vibrant. No problems, zero, except these doctors. So I decided to go around to these doctors after she gets this angiogram. Because the angiogram showed that she gets a 0.56 centimeter expansion. So within nine months, the, the first echocardiogram showed 0.36, and then nine months later, the angiogram showed a 0.56 centimeter opening. That's a huge increase. That is, according to modern science, that's impossible. And right? how come there was that big change over those nine months? Marijuana. And her diet. And her diet. Marijuana and so and her diet. She was doing the same thing of heating it and then eating it. Correct. Okay. Correct. Right. That's that's really that's really the biggest thing. So so anyways, so I go around to all the doctors and um the surgeon doesn't have any of her case history. He won't talk to me in front of a nurse. There's no witnesses. Um he's basically telling telling Patty that, you know. She could die any minute. He says it right in front of me. Um, all this kind of crazy stuff, and I'm arguing with them about everything. Then I go see the, the cardiologist, and the cardiologist is like, I ask him a few questions, and he's like, oh, well, yeah, you did. 
well, yeah, we did show biomarkers for arteries being clogged. And that was like in response to me going, listen, we cleared out her artery. She's doing great. What are you guys doing? Why are you forcing her? And he, the doc, the cardiologist was like, hey, you know, just think positive. The surgery's going to go great. Don't worry about it. I'm like, well, what about these statistics? It shows that she, there's a 6% chance she'll die on the table, and there's a 25% chance she'll die within 12 months of the surgery. Like, what about these statistics? How come you're not talking to her about the risk factors? I want Patty to understand over the last three years how much she's improved, and I want you to tell her how much she's improved. She needs to understand that she doesn't need this surgery. And they're like, nope, she's still below 0.8. She's still critical. She still needs this surgery. And just think positive, and he runs out the room. So anyways, we go through this whole madness. She ends up go, going to get the surgery. Now, she's convinced it's a 45-minute procedure. She'll be home the next day. So don't listen to the doctors, people. TAVR surgery is highly risky and unproven. There's no statistics on its efficacy for more than three years. You know, so it's just not worth the risk. So anyway, she goes in, she thinks she's gonna be home the next day. She cooks all of her food. She's getting all ready, everything's going great. You can tell she's really scared. She's compartmentalizing, trying to ignore her fears. Take her into the hospital. Um, she's supposed to have surgery at 8.30. It doesn't get started until 10.30. It's supposed to last 45 minutes. It goes for three hours. And when she comes, when she comes out, the doctor, talks to me and says, the surgeon just says, oh yeah, go home, get some rest, eat some lunch, um, come back in a couple hours, she'll be in the ICU, don't worry about it. The first one just didn't, didn't work, so we had to put in a second one. That's all I knew at that point, right? I'm like, what the hell, did, I go, did you put in a pacemaker? Because you said there was a one in five chance you would need a pacemaker. Oh no, we haven't put in a pacemaker yet. I'm like, what the hell, I'm like, all right, I'll be back. I'll be right back. I, you're right. I need to take a shower. I stink. I need to eat. So I went home, came back. So that first procedure, which was supposed to be 45 minutes, was supposed to put this stent into her heart valve to replace, and they're going to cut out her natural heart valve. But it didn't take, and so they tried to put another one in? Yeah, so that's exactly, so that's right. So here's what happened. And here's a common risk factor that Patty was totally unaware of, and I was totally unaware of this. Had I known this was a common risk factor, I would have fought way harder. Because of her 0.36 centimeter opening, it's obvious that her aortic valve was so calcified that you couldn't get a aortic valve medical device to actually seal because the calcium had little jagged edges, right? So how do you get it to seal against a 0.36 centimeter calcified valve? You don't, it's impossible. No one can do this. That's, that's insane what they did, it's insane. So anyways, they put in this first one, it doesn't seal. So they spend all kinds messing with it and playing around with it and then it slips. Okay, so it slips down, and that reduces her blood flow, reduces her pressure, makes her heart basically die. In that moment, her heart is dead. So they pump, they give her a bunch of chemicals, and they put in a valve through the second valve and try to open it and seal a second valve through the first one. 
And I don't know if that was the right thing to do or not. It sounds absolutely moronic to me. It seems to me after the first one failed, they should have gone into open heart surgery. And I would have been happy to recommend that. I'm good consent. Because to me, I mean, it's just what they did. It's, just, it's unimaginable to think that you could put in a second one and open that one up and it'll seal magically, right? So now there's a gap between the two. Both of them are leaking. Her heart is essentially dead at this point because it can't pump on its own, okay? And as a result of that, she's now in ICU. They got her on a, a breathing tube and they're pumping her full of chemicals, speed, all these things. Her heart is pounding out of her chest. Her whole body is moving up and down as her heart's pounding out of her chest and she's totally alert and totally vital and totally her. And she's scared out of her mind and they're torturing her and they're destroying her slowly but surely. And she did not request, she gave her medical directive. She said, I do not want heroic efforts. I don't want life support. I don't want feeding tubes. I don't want open heart surgery. I don't want any of this. He goes, if this doesn't work, let me die. You know, but and they you kept were, her alive. You were her power of attorney for medical. Yeah, so I was her power of attorney for medical. I've been her caregiver for 15 years. I've been her best friend for 25 years. She was my department chair, mentor. I'm mean, just a totally awesome person, you know? So anyways, so yeah, so that's, so that's, that's what happened after the first surgery. Um, they put her in ICU. Then they asked for consent to put in a balloon to try and seal it against the walls. Again, but are too calcified. But they're telling me, they're lying to me, and they're saying that they believe the valve is constricting some kind of artery and preventing the blood flow. But they actually know that both valves are leaking. But they're just lying to me. So they decide to go put in a, a balloon, another surgery, three-hour surgery, put a balloon and try to expand them, try to expand it and get it to seal. Okay, that didn't work, right? Then they go to. Then they try to do another surgery. Then they put. Then they put in a, a pacemaker. That was another three-hour surgery. So in between the second and the third surgery, was Patty conscious again? And yeah, yeah. So they would keep her sedated. Um, I would be in there, and we would wake her up, and I would talk to her and let her know what's going on. Um, she had her niece there, which was a great help. She's like a medical technician girl, and she was awesome. She helped me really fight everybody. But basically what's what ended up happening was is that they contacted the next of kin instead of following the medical directive. When they contacted the next of kin after that first surgery, the next of kin gave them permission to keep her alive. Because the nurse called me, the nurse talked to me after the first surgery and talked to me and said that, um, did, did Patty have a medical directive? He was all panicked. He's like, I've been trying to keep her alive for the last five hours. I've been keeping her alive with all this stuff. I talked to her sister and she gave consent, but do you have a medical directive? I'm like, yeah, we gave it to you before we admitted her. It was like, what are you guys doing? I can't find it. I can't find it. He's just freaking out because you can tell he's been working so hard to keep Patty alive with chemicals that he is at a loss. He's like, I, we should let her die. This is crazy. But because he has to follow the doctor's orders, the doctors are saying, no, 
you know, we're going to do more and more procedures. So the first, after the first procedure, they went and installed a permanent pacemaker. After the permanent pacemaker, they went with the balloon. And then after the balloon, they wanted to um, do another procedure called a cuff, where they were going to try and force open the slipped valve so that it was forced open. And I'm just like, dude, you guys told me that the balloon was your last ditch effort. And now you're telling me that this is your last ditch effort. And, and you guys recommended open heart surgery after you screwed up these two TAVR valve <laughs> implants. And I come to find out that when we looked it up, there's a 2% chance she would have survived open heart surgery after a TAVR procedure. So oh, 2% chance of surviving open heart surgery after a TVR. Oh, so very low. Very low. Like it's like a Hail Mary, total Hail Mary. So, so I, we declined, we declined the open heart surgery. And then I was trying to decline the cuff because I was like, listen, you guys are just torturing her at this point. You guys need to let her die. Okay. She wants this tube out of her mouth. She's hungry. You guys haven't fed her anything. <laughs> it's 48 hours later. You guys promised me this would have been over 24 hours ago. I go, this is insane. We had a big meeting with all the doctors and nurses. I had to threaten the call lawyers and administrators. I'm like, no, I do not consent. And then, the, and then the niece said, well, what if Patty consents? What if we get Patty consent? Because she's not mentally incapacitated. She can give her own consent. So we go wake up Patty. We pull her off the sedation. Her heart starts pounding again. She's scared. She gives consent. I run out of the room. They try to make me sign a legalese consent form for this final procedure. I run out of the hospital because I won't sign it. And I'm like, you know, anybody would consent. If you're sitting there on death's door, and you know, you're going to consent to anything. It doesn't matter, you know. But she did not consent to heart open heart surgery again, which I thought was really fascinating. So I was like, okay. So anyways, I wouldn't consent. So they called me. I was sitting out in the car. They called me and they go, we need your consent before this next surgery, which was the, the last surgery where they could try to force open the slipped valve. And I was like, um, no, I'm not giving consent. And they're like, well, then we'll take her off of uh, pain meds for four hours. We'll have to take her off of pain medication for four hours so that her consent is legal. I was like, holy shit, fine, I give consent. What the hell, are you kidding me? And you did that to prevent her from being taken off pain meds and experiencing all that pain. Yeah. Like I can imagine, like, this is her biggest fear. This is the one thing she didn't want to happen. Everything they're doing to her is exactly what she didn't want. And she expressly said it in a signed document that was witnessed and notarized and it submitted several times. <laughs> okay. Somehow they lost it. You know, how convenient. But yeah, how convenient. So anyways, these sons of bitches, they basically sent her in ICU for 48 hours. And right before the last surgery, they're rolling her in and she dies. So finally, her, her heart totally gave out. And the doctor called me in the surgery room and said, oh, we're not going to do the surgery. Uh, her heart's dead. So we're just not going to do the surgery. And just like this crazy, like weird, like, mechanical robotic response like oh her heart's dead 
So not that she's dead, but her heart is dead. Right. Right. Not the person. It was insane. It was totally insane. And again, this guy's like maybe 40 years old. He's a kid. I mean, he's a total kid. Like these all, they're all kids. And this hospital has built this brand new cardiological wing and they didn't have enough money to finish the fifth floor. And this surgeon sits on the board of this hospital. And since they didn't have enough money to finish the fifth floor of, this, of his cardiological wing, they sent out in everyone's employment paycheck, they sent out a donation form. And they said, if you want, basically, they were basically saying, hey, listen, if you want job security, you better donate so that we can continue to pay you and so that we can finish this fifth floor. Like you can just, you can just feel the, the oppression, the coercion of doing that in someone's paycheck, you know? So anyways, they're trying to finish this fifth floor and you just know that they're trying to do as many procedures as possible to maximize Patty's insurance payout. And Patty's insurance payout happens to be awesome. You know, she's 78, she's on educational pensions. She's full professors in multiple schools. You know, she's got great supplemental insurance. She zero out of pocket, you know, and they were just gonna milk that son of a bitch until they, I mean, they were gonna do open heart surgery. What could have been more expensive? An angiogram, one angiogram cost Patty, cost Patty's insurance $150,000. That's how much they charge insurance for one angiogram. The more procedures they can do, the more profit they make. Yeah, that's it. That's what it all comes down to. And they call, you know, unnecessary procedures is the, is the biggest expense to the American healthcare system. It's like 250 billion a year. Segwaying to the proactive uh, part of the story, and you mentioned earlier about the, your governor of Nevada. Tell me a bit more. How did that come to be, and where is it going? All right. So I got involved again with these uh, dental board complaints, and um, come to find out as I was getting involved in all that, that this was a really big problem, you know? So there's lots of other people that identify the problem and they're all talking to me because I went and did a uh, public statement. So in Nevada, there's this thing called open meeting law. So all these licensing boards have to have an open meeting. And these licensing boards are required during all their public meetings to have public members to allow public members to speak, and they're allowed to get, speak for three minutes. So anybody who's a citizen of Nevada resident can walk in to any of these licensing boards and give a three-minute statement, and they have to listen, period. That's the law. So I, they, these people talk me into going and give a public statement. All these people that are aware of what's going on with the dental board tell me what's going on with the dental board and how corrupt it is. And they go, listen, go give a public statement. We're going to have a video camera there. We'll record it. So I go give my public statement. And as soon as I start talking about doctors and stuff, they cut me off and silence me because they don't want me to expose their corruption. And that's what the whole public statement was about, was their corruption. So, so I go give this. And they cut me off. They call, call the police. They, they run me out of the meeting. 
Then after I'm home, they apply for an extended restraining order against me. So I can never go back and speak. And they lied in this restraining order saying that their lives were threatened and all that kind of stuff. So anyways, we have video evidence that shows they're all laughing and joking around. No one was scared for their lives. It was just all a big scam to try and silence me, right? So anyways, I go to the judge. I show the judge the video. The judge totally reprimands the dental board that there's an open meeting law. You're not allowed to do this. But the judge also was on their side. She gave them the restraining order. She awarded them based upon their lies. And um, there's like a temporary restraining order period before the extended restraining order hearing. So she awarded that temporary restraining order based upon their lies. They had no evidence that their lies were threatened in any way. And they were totally lying. And then I went into the court for the extended restraining order, which is required by law. I show the video, the judge changed his mind. But the judge also said, if you don't like it, you can leave the state of Nevada. And she said that to me. So it wasn't like the judge totally reversed her course. She was very nasty to me. She was very confrontational. She was trying to get me to react. She was trying to, she was trying to award the restraining order for the dental board. Because again, they're all friends. They, they're all women. They're all part of the government. It's a very tight-knit group. It's a very small state. It's, you know, you got to imagine there's only like two and a half million people in Clark County. And, you know, it's a very small state. So anyways, I go through this whole madness. And then the governor gets, Governor Sislak gets elected. Now, the previous governor was a Republican, and we now have a Democratic governor. And this guy is like Santa Claus with an edge. He's all about going around and fixing all these boards and all this kind of stuff. And he's been on these boards for the last 20 years. I guess he's a rich guy. I don't, I don't even know him at all. But anyways, he, he is like really hardcore. Like I really like fell in love with this guy because he started going after the dental board. And he said, in my 20 years of government, I've never seen a more egregious audit of a licensing board in my life. Like he was like, bam, he's like, I'm going after him. So I was like, oh man, all right, here's my chance. So then I start um, doing public statements at his meetings. He has meetings called the Board of Examiners meetings. And his Board of Examiners meetings has like the district attorney and the treasurer. And, you know, it's like big time people and the governor. And guess what? The governor's sitting there by himself in Vegas in a boardroom. And I get to sit there right, right next to him and read my public statement right to him eye to eye. And so I've done that for the last three times. And he totally loves my public statements. And as a result of the governor and my work and all these other people, like Las Vegas Dental Association, lots of lots of people, and then this... Uh, this uh, investigative journalist from the Las Vegas Review Journal writes an expose, a multi-part series expose. And he brings me in for an interview. I tell him my story, tell him all the stuff. And he brings in all these other people. And he basically exposes all the nastiness. So all of the dental board, the corruption that goes on. Yeah. So it's really cool. It's like really cool backup. And then, and then I, 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 uh, uh, send in three new dental board complaints against three new dentists. So that would be a total of six. 
and I send those three in, they assign it to one investigator, all three, which is against the governor's orders. So the governor, as a result of the audit, ordered them to do a board review, checks and balances, all this kind of stuff, orders. And they had until December to finish it. So anyways, I, I do my stuff and this is all happening October, right? All this stuff's happening October of this year. So they have until December to fix everything. I do my three complaints and I three new ones. The article comes out um, and then, then they assign my three complaints to one investigator. Then the governor swoops in, cancels the board meeting right before they're about to screw me cancels the entire dental board meeting and says, you all need to come in next week for a disciplinary hearing for doing what you're doing. So instead of them coming in next week to the disciplinary hearing, they send in a Republican lobbyist who represents a certain faction of the board, okay, to basically tender their resignations. So no one shows up to the disciplinary hearing they all resign, and before they resign, they fire the executive director and the attorney for the dental board. So they fire everyone and they reduce everyone. Now, why did they do that? They didn't do that because they're scared of being disciplined. They have so much power, it's crazy. They did that because I threatened them with a lawsuit that would make them personally liable. So there's a Supreme Court case that was heard in 2015 by the Supreme Court, and it was against the dental board in North Carolina. And the dental board was acting, they're all practicing dentists, and they were acting to block the ability of like these, uh, these uh, braces, like smile, smile, pretty smile. They're not like braces, they're like mail-in braces, they're like there's certain ways that you don't, it doesn't cost you as much as braces, right? They're like plastic things. They send you a new one every week. Anyways, this dental board in North Carolina was trying to block them from being able to sell that in their state because they want to make money off races. They don't want corporations to make money off of their mail-in stuff. So the Supreme Court said, guess what, dental board? If you continue to act in an antitrust manner, then you will be personally liable for your antitrust actions. In other words, they are no longer afforded state protection because they're acting in an antitrust way. Mm -hmm. And all an antitrust way means is that you're trying to basically maintain your monopoly. That's all they're trying to do, right? Then they said, and as a result of licensed practitioners overseeing other licensed practitioners, the standard of care will become so convoluted that not even a good licensed practitioner will be able to decipher what the standard of care is. So they basically, they basically called them out. They said directly, straight up, you know, you can't, as a licensed practitioner, uh, oversight from the state is so manifest that it needs to be dominating because licensed practitioners obviously will never be about public protection. They will always be about, you know, their own pocketbooks. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was just amazing. So once I threatened them with that, because I have built up five years of evidence, 
I was working on this case for five years. But as a result of that, they basically tendered a resignation. So there was forces, Las Vegas Dental Association, the governor, the Las Vegas Review Journal, investigative journalism, all kinds of patients, all kinds of people. But at the end of the day, making them personally liable is the key. And that's the solution I want to talk about because that's where the governor comes in. So as a result, the governor, before all this stuff happened, the governor, right when he came into office, he decided to pass a bill or lead a bill where he sets up a patient protection commission. And the patient protection commission is going to be made up of doctors, nurses, public members, health and human services, Medicare, and they're all, they're all coming together and they're all going to be appointed next year. And they're all coming together to basically um, advocate ways to reduce healthcare costs, to increase patient protection, so on and so forth. So now, but the, here's the approach. The approach is all wrong, but we gotta, we gotta understand that all these guys think in compartmentalizes ways. So health and human services, they're really focused on like public health issues. They're not, they're not really focused on nutrition and, and re-engineering the system and educating the patients about uh, risk factors and the microbiome and alternative methods. And, and that's really where we need to get. We need to focus on, instead of on procedure success, we need to focus on human success. So that's that specific patient. So we need to somehow create a system where we have that entire patient's holistic situation all on one page kind of thing. We need it so that every single person that touches this patient knows everything there is to know about that patient before they touch them. So right now it's all compartmentalized. I'm specialized in this, I'm specialized in this. Communication isn't happening. Risk factors aren't being communicated. The education of the patient's not being done. Also, continuing education is so corrupt that these doctors aren't being educated on the alternatives. Um, and, and you get all this kind of scenario. So the so solution really is, is in transforming these licensing boards to make the doctors personally liable and to ensure that the patients know every risk factor and to ensure that every single doctor that touches that patient knows everything there is to know about that patient. So when you combine all these different factors, you can actually create a more effective healthcare system because a patient's medical directive would be a bunch of if-then statements. For example, Patty, if she went into the hospital, she goes, okay, I'm gonna get this TABR. Now here's a risk factor. If this risk factor occurs, do you approve of this solution? Here's what happens if this solution doesn't work, and here's the probability of this solution working. Like we really need to have a bunch of if-thens that every single patient signs off on. And if the patient doesn't sign off on that, then guess what? The doctor doesn't get reimbursed for the failed procedures. It's all about personal liability, and it's all about tracking everything. Because then what happens if we have now a database of all these different patients, 
Patty Shock, 78 years old, uh, aortic stenosis, um, fixed their arteries, um, sleep apnea, blah, 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 blah. You go through the whole scenario, right? And you see all this information, and then you type in your patient that is, is proposal for a TAVR. And your patient, you go, my patient is 62, he has this, this, and this. What's the probability of success for a TAVR? And that way we have actually artificial intelligence running a, a, a guidance system that can educate the doctors as well. Because right now the doctors are, are enabled to be diluted. And since we're in a for-profit healthcare system and they're being, they're being um, reimbursed on procedures, not on success, if we can somehow get it to a for-profit system that is reimbursed on success, now we're talking and liability for failure. Oh my God. Now we're talking. Now we're talking about real doctors, doctors that are forced to look at you as a whole person, you know? So anyways, that's, that's where I'm going with it. And I want to get appointed as a public member on this commission. And I've been working with the governor and I'm hoping it works out. Obviously I'm a, a, a little energetic and inflammatory, for these doctors and nurses. But I think he wants that. I think he's gonna want that kind of conflict. Cause you know, good conflict creates awesome solutions, right? We I mean, often say in counseling that a, a rupture in a relationship, when that rupture is healed, can create a stronger relationship. No doubt. It also sounds like that he's wanting to have a balanced uh, a board or a group here and that he needs to have the patient voice who is independent and not going to be a yes person or a token patient on the board. So he's really wanting a, a, a patient with a voice. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really hoping that works out because I, I really think at the end of the day, we're going to need sort of like a, uh, a patient advocacy that a group that is protected by the state from liabilities and that they are stationed in every hospital and that they speak with every patient and that and that way they can talk to the patients about alternatives because that's what's not happening. No one's talking about alternatives. And there's tons of scientific evidence out there, Scott, tons about the microbiome and how and its effects. And there's tons and tons and tons. And there's all these huge aggregate studies about these risk factors of all these procedures and medical devices. And I just can't see how we can approve as an insurance company, how an insurance company can approve a, 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 a pharmacological medicine that is works on 30% of the patients and that has so many side effects. Like, how is that possible? And how can we pay for a medical device that is totally unproven? Like how, to me, it seems like the control mechanism has to be the insurance companies. But if the insurance companies are colluding with the medical device industry to increase their rates, increase their profit margins, then we're really in trouble. And that's what looks like what's happening. I mean, this medical device industry, look at all the patents for medical devices. I mean, they're skyrocketing. It's just like insane what's going on out there. I mean, I'm friends with industrial designers and they're designing all these medical devices. And these guys are so narcissistic. They believe that they're saving the world by turning us into robots. I'm like, what? 
what the is going on? I cannot imagine thinking like that. But anyways, that's where we're at, bro. So but yeah, the solution is that. So this uh, group that he's setting up, I've forgotten what you called it now. Um, I think it, Patient Protection Commission. Patient Protection Commission. Uh, often on these sort of boards and groups and committees where they have patients included, often those patients aren't being paid and they're the only ones sitting around that table that are not being paid for their time right. in that meeting. So I, personally, uh, I'd be inquiring about how that particular element within that oh, yeah. group I'm is definitely going to get paid, Ryan. Equity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yo, no, I think that's why he passed the bill was to get funding for it. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So that's what I'm hoping. But he's right now, again, like you said, Scott, it's, he wants to break everybody in the committees and then have them all come back together with solutions and strategies, you know? And I, again, I think that's really the wrong approach. The governor needs to dictate a vision. And then the, the commission needs to meet that vision in a practical way, you know? And that's, to me, that's the correct approach. And that's, I'm, I'm going to speak again to the governor next week at his next board of examiners meeting, another three-minute public statement. And as a result of our talk today and our collaboration, I'm going to add, <laughs> I'm going to add this stuff to it. But yeah, so that's the plan wow david you've uh you're fulfilling your childhood path of being a an advocate and looking oh, out for no, other man. folks it's it's very rewarding it's very rewarding but, so where can people find you on say social media or do you have a website yeah 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 so um my my website um first of all linkedin is the best way to contact me at any time, LinkedIn, David Harold Moore. I'm the only David Harold Moore on there, I think. <laughs> so that's real easy. M W O R E. And then my website for my uh, nutraceuticals that I have a patent pending on um, is that whole marijuana and whole hemp uh, nutraceutical. And it's called, and it's got all kinds of diet advice and all kinds of videos from TED Talks and microbiome and how marijuana grows brain cells. I mean, it's a huge educational site. I'm not making any money. I'm not selling anything yet. I'm just trying to give people the word. And it's mylifeback.com. Mylifeback.com without a C. So it's mylifeback.com. Mylifeback.com. Okay. But yeah. Well, David, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and for the work that you're doing on behalf of people beyond yourself. Um, and making it safer for patients, not only in the dental industry, but in the, the broader medical healthcare system. Yeah, because it's really the whole system. And thank you, man. You're the one sitting, getting out there spreading the word. It's only through these nightmare stories that people are going to become aware. And without these stories, without you sharing these stories, no one else is. No newspapers pick these things up. No one's talking about any of this stuff. The whole system has been corrupted by money. Yeah, I, I got to say, when I first started the podcast, I just thought it was going to be medical error. I hadn't even considered the whole dental industry. And now that I've, I think you're the third dental patient. And then a couple of weeks ago, I spoke with Dr. Michael Zuck, Z-U-K, yeah, yeah, yeah. a dentist. Um, and so it's been a real shocking 
eye-opener for me about the dental industry, I must say. Well, it's so brutal, but it's so simple. Like, and the solution is so simple. Minimally, minimally invasive, one tooth at a time. Just keep that in your mind. Please, all patients, please. <laughs> yeah, whenever you're going to uh, see a dental professional, yeah, I'm going to keep that in mind. Thank keep you. that in mind. All right. Thank you, David. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Scott. You're the best, brother. Well, a huge thanks to patient advocate David Moore for sharing the challenges he faced as the person responsible to carry out the medical directive of his friend Patty when confronted by a medical system intent on performing more high-risk, low-reward surgeries. David's approach of going after the dental board to hold them personally liable certainly turned the NAVA dental board on its head and left them scrambling away like rats from a sinking ship. From what I've learned about the corruption of dental boards from doing this podcast, there needs to be more sinking of these rat-infested ships to stop the wholesale harming of dental patients. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others.